Good evening to all of y'all. It's a pleasure to worship with you all this evening. So, first off, what is the Word of God? Whenever you pick up your Bible in the mornings or, or whatever, whenever you sit down to read, I mean, it basically is what God is telling us, has told men throughout the ages. He has inspired and motivated through his Holy Spirit men willing to write what he wants us to hear. I mean, there's guys like Moses and David and Paul, just a number of few. But what exactly is the word of God? And do we know if it's reliable? Do we know if God is really telling us what he means? Let's turn to 1 John, or not 1 John, let's turn to the Gospel of John. My bad. And we'll read verses 1 to 17. So what exactly is the word of God? We'll start at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So in essence, the word is God himself. He has been around since the beginning of time. He has been around even before creation. He, has, he is infinite. There is no, def he is not confined by time at all. And because he is infinite, he has presented us that his infinite, his infiniteness, excuse me. <clears throat> One thing that struck me whenever we was reading in verse 15 was he is, he that cometh after me is preferred before me for he was before me. Which basically defines what I just told you about. So, reliability. Is the word reliable? Yes, it is. Because God presented us Jesus Christ who came down from earth and presented it to us out of the context of what the law was written for us. Or outside of what the law had 
for the Jews. And for us, how do we respond to this word? Do we take God's commands seriously as we should? Let's turn again to Ecclesiastes 12.19. I've been reading through some of the Old Testament as of late in my daily Bible readings. And Ecclesiastes was one of the books that I came across. It's very interesting. You know, sometimes we read through Ecclesiastes and say, it's like, oh my goodness, it's just terribly down to earth. Vanity of vanities and all that kind of thing, but it's very inspiring. One, it reveals what our attitude is supposed to be toward the Lord, and it also reveals to us what our responsibility is towards God's plan of salvation and what he has instructed us throughout Scripture. We'll start at verse 9, and we'll just read through the rest. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed, and sought out, and set in order many proverbs. The preachers sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my sons be admonished. Of many, making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And this here is my challenge to all of y'all. Fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So, we know that the word is Jesus. And if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and do what God has commanded us to, then we shall find peace in what the Lord has sought out for us, especially for in eternity. So good evening to each one. As was announced, our topic was on the unity of the word. So one thing I thought about, you know, what what is unity and Initially, I was, before I looked in the dictionary, I just kind of assumed it meant, you know, everything the same. But the definition it gave was the state of being united or joined as a whole. And I think that describes the Bible well. Not everything is about love, love, love through the whole chapter. I mean, there's judgment there. There's, um, you know, different subjects it speaks, speaks about. But as a whole, it is very united. Um, I'll probably just read most of what I have here, mostly because I don't do very good with notes, and that's the reason. Bible is united and joined around one figure, and that is the word Jesus Christ. Each of his books point to him. I think that is where you will find unity uh, between various scriptures. What might not look like they're all that related to each other, um, you know, in the Old Testament, some places and stuff, but it all points to Christ. The Bible was written by 40 authors from different countries over a period of more than 1,500 years. Each of its books 
lend to its overall theme, which I believe is the salvation of mankind. With salvation being the theme, the Bible reveals what that means. The Bible doesn't spell out the entire salvation plan in the first chapter, but step by step, God revealed to us what it was. He gave various accounts that showed his judgment and holiness or showed his mercy and forgiveness. You could go to any book of the Bible and find tid tidbits on that, but um, like in books of, Sam books of Samuel and the Kings and Chronicles, we have Israel living under the old covenant law. Um, it seemed like they were constantly forsaken. It Psalms is a more personal account of David's walk with God, I would say. And I think from that, you can convert a lot of that, his physical enemies, over to like spiritual realities of today. Um, in the book of the prophets, you know, they pronounce judgment on Israel's sin, which, you know, was in complete unity with what God had promised years before. You know, if they sinned, he was going to bring judgment. Uh, but they also pointed forward to a change in Israel, I think, and a coming king as well. You find that a lot in, in the prophets. But I will focus more on, like, Genesis and some of those earlier books. Um, historical records, I just think it's interesting, especially Genesis. There's a lot in there um, in various places in there where it pointed to Christ. <clears throat> Genesis gives, a, gives account of that perfect relationship between God and man in the garden that was broken by man's disobedience. That broken relationship meant eternal death. I don't think Adam and Eve really grasped at the time the reality of what they had done. You know, if they could see all of the next 6,000 years, which they couldn't, but I think they'd probably be shocked at what their um, actions would have caused, or what they caused. But I think man needed to see why he needed to see a sa why he needed a Savior. He needed to see his lost condition and inability to save himself from God's righteous judgment. And yet, you see a glimpse of the love of God, even while he was when he pronounced judgment on them, he promised a future remedy. God wanted a relationship with man, yet his holiness required a remedy before that relationship could be restored. Leading up to the flood, we see what our evil nature will lead to. We see God's holiness in revealing wrath on sin by bringing the flood to wipe out evil man, yet we also see him showing mercy and providing a means of deliverance to those who loved him. This pattern of sin, judgment, and deliverance is repeated time and again in the Bible. Uh, in the story of Abraham, I think, you know, he points, there's a lot of different things we could pull from that whole story, but um, one I thought of was God always delivers on his promises. doesn't matter, um, you know, even if it seems impossible. God promised him, old Abraham, that him and Sarah would have a son. He keeps promising him that as the years went by. And it seemed like Abraham started to doubt, and he takes matters into his own hands and has Ishmael from his slave wife. He shouldn't have done that, and yet God used the result to point to a spiritual truth much later on. In Galatians, Paul refers to them as an allegory between the Old and New Testaments. He says in Galatians 4.28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Isaac finally shows up according to God's promise and is a type in the shadow of Jesus Christ, the promised Son of God. Right there you have an account of unity between the Old and the New Testament. Both Isaac and Christ's births were impossible apart from God. The account God commanding Abraham to offer Isaac and then providing a sacrifice in his place gives us another future glimpse of his only son offering himself on our behalf. A couple things I found interesting about this account, just some tidbits while I was reading through there. Um, when Abraham picks up the knife to sacrifice Isaac and God stops, and the Bible specifically notes that God called out of heaven twice in regard to Abraham not holding back his only son. 
the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record the two times that God spoke from heaven, calling Christ his beloved son. I just thought that was interesting um, correlation there. In Genesis 22.8, Abraham is answering Isaac's question. Abraham, or Isaac was asking him, you know, where's the lamb at? They were going up to the mountain. He says, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. I was looking at that word provide. thought it was kind of interesting. And Abraham may have just meant it, you know, in the term that we would mean it. But many of the definitions of that word provide meant, or a lot of, or some, a couple of them here, were to perceive consider or present oneself. If you read that in that, it would be like Abraham was saying God would was perceiving himself or considering himself or presenting himself as a sacrifice. And I think, um, yeah, that's, that's really what God did for us. Last part of that same verse says, so they went on both of them together. In the context of that situation within that verse, I think it could speak to God, the Father, and Son, both going forward and providing a the promised sacrifice for mankind. The story of Joseph is a beautiful one of forgiveness and how God worked in many bad situations to bring about his purposes. Joseph did not have an ideal home life. His brothers were evil and treated him wrongly, but God used that to put Joseph where he wanted him. Joseph's testimony of that was that God sent him to preserve life, to preserve Jacob's family. I think Joseph represents Christ forgiving our sins against him and preserving our lives. From that story, we also get a look at Judah and how he interceded for Benjamin and was willing to take his place as a slave. And I just had to wonder if maybe that's why Christ, our intercessor, came from the line of Judah. I want to sound that interesting. See, many times throughout Scripture, God uses evil men and the evil they do to accomplish his purposes. I believe that culminated at the cross. Evil men did their worst in the rebellion against God crucifying the promised Savior of the world, yet that was the very means by which God had planned long before to bring salvation to mankind. In Exodus, we find God instituting the Passover, the perfect lamb sacrifice that, when applied, would protect Israel from the judgment of God on Egypt. I think this pointed forward to Jesus Christ as the perfect lamb of God, shedding his blood so that when his blood is applied to our hearts, we too can be protected from God's judgment. And I think Israel's departure from Egypt could be considered a type and shadow or whatever of our departure from sin in the world. I found it interesting that Israel couldn't leave until the Passover was slain. For us today, we cannot leave sin in the world behind until like the blood, until the blood of our Passover lamb is applied to our hearts. And then, like Israel, we'll get out of Egypt. In Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. We have the account God given the Ten Commandments at Sinai. I think his, um, I think he was, you know, how he came down on the mountain with all the, the power and you know, majesty that he displayed there. I think maybe he was giving them and giving us a glimpse of who he was, who gave those laws, and who we're dealing with when we're not obeying the Ten Commandments or you know his laws that he gave. Um, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Shortly after this, God gives Moses the law, the building of the tabernacle, and all the sacrificial laws. I think the law, to an extent, fleshed out more detail how Israel was to live up to the Ten Commandments. 
God wanted Israel to be a holy nation unto him. And I think the law list of sacrifices, you know, they had all kinds of sacrifices for different stuff. Um, I think it showed that no matter how hard Israel tried, there was going to be no way they could escape God's judgment without being there being blood shed on their behalf. They had sin offerings that had to be offered when sin was committed, and like I said, other offerings that were continually required even if they hadn't sinned. And I think that points over to our lives today. We need Christ's cleansing blood in our lives continually, not just when we've committed sin. We just, we, we do. Um, it's because, yeah, we're sinful and God is holy. The presence, jumping ahead of myself here, the thick veil in the temple separating the priests from the presence of God over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was not freely accessible. The mercy seat was a place of mercy and forgiveness. Hebrews 9, 7 through 8 says, But into the second, that is the second Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing. Jump down verses 11 and 12, he says, But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of, time of need. The high priest had to shed blood to go into that place, offer a sacrifice. You know, there, like I said, there was a place of mercy and pardon, but he had to shed animal blood to be able to access that only when God said. For us today, the blood of Christ has to be present before we can access the mercy and forgiveness that God has for us. Throughout the rest of Israel's histories in the Old, in the Old Testament, we're given accounts of their faithfulness, their failures, God blessing them, God punishing them. Like I said earlier, the prophets prophesied judgment, but they, and especially Isaiah, prophesied of Christ's coming. In the New Testament, we see the life of Christ and how he fulfilled what was promised, prophesied of him. His death and resurrection opened the way to relationship between mankind and God and the ability to live a holy life. He brought to light the types and shadows of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, people who reflect he brought to light the, all right, bad notes here. He brought to light the, the, the types and shadows and also like Joseph, Abraham, um, Jacob, all those, those old people who pointed towards Christ. Um, he brought all that to light, um, reflected a bit. You know, they, they reflected in some way like uh, Joseph reflected a little bit of who God was. Um, Abraham reflected a little bit of who God was. He brought all that to light. We see Christ as our perfect example to follow. We have ordinances that point back to him instead of forward as in the Old Testament, but just as in the Old Testament, just as the Old Testament kept promising a son, and then he came. So in the New Testament, we find promises of Christ's coming. Good evening, everyone. It's good to be here with you this evening. So I'm going to talk a little bit here about the eternity of the word. And these different aspects of the word overlap some. The reliability of the word and the unity of the word 
in a, in a large part have to do with the fact that the God who wrote it is eternal. Um, he knew what he was talking about. And he sees the beginning. He sees the end. And so they are connected here. <coughs> the value, the merit, the longevity of written work, somewhat dependent on the, the qualifications, the characteristics, the importance of the person who was doing the writing. And yesterday, I was mowing the cemetery and just thinking about the lives that are represented there. You know, everybody has a life and each marker is representing a life there. There may, there may have been some writers there. Um, there's one that was it's fairly big and impressive and it says, I think it was Daniel Early, um, 1855. Um, it really has no significance to me. Maybe some relative of yours. I'm not sure. But it, you know, he was back at the time of the Civil War. He was, he was a young person there. But I just don't remember reading or hearing about anything that he said. Um, it might be there. Maybe you know that. But I don't. And, and there's Menno Simons. How many of you have read the writings of Menno Simons? Okay. Um, he was a fairly important person in our past. We, we are named after him. And yet, you know, we don't really take the time to even see what he wrote. I'm sure probably we have heard different things that he wrote, that he said. Um, but it's not that we spend a lot of time at that. And there are ancient writers um, that go back pretty far, actually. But very few people read them. Most of the people that do read them are probably scholars who are studying ancient writings. Um, so their impact on us today, I'm sure there's some I would have heard in school about Plato. Plato. I can't think of how he would have impacted my life. And yet, I'm sure that you can read some of the things that he wrote. And one of the most ancient authors, and again, I'm going by what other people have said, written, couldn't verify this, um, probably the daughter of a Sumerian king, and forgot to write down her name, but it was something like Enhejuana. And this was over 2,000 years before the time of Christ. And she was from, she was from Ur, and there we, we have a connection with that. We know someone from Ur. But possibly Abraham knew this person. Or at least maybe read, read her writings. She was a priestess of the moon god, I believe. And 
we know that God told Abraham, it's time for you to leave Ur. And so Abraham might have known about this. But time moves on. And the cycle of life continues. People come and go. Even important people come and go and are mostly forgotten. We're, we're kind of stuck in Ecclesiastes, the first part there. Um, the cycle of life goes on. People come, people go. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. But we want to live. And we want to be significant. We don't want to be forgotten. Um, I know this lady, a lady that we bought some property from at one point, and she had another piece of property, and she was not going to sell it. Um, she was going to will it to her son, and then I think his daughter after him. She said she's going to rule from the grave. Um, but that really doesn't work that well. She will soon, if time continues, you know, we, we pass on. We will soon join those who have been gone and forgotten. <clears throat> so the eternity of the word is enormously significant. Um, its author is eternal. And the Sunday school lesson this morning mentioned the power of an endless life. And that is significant. Um, the power of an endless life. In the continuous flow of life, there's one constant, um, one marker, one monument that does not change. And it's not a monument to a life that has been. It's a monument to a life that is, a life that is eternal. The eternal God and by extension, his word. <clears throat> Hebrews 6, verse 12, I believe says, regarding God's covenant to Abraham, because he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. Dr. Lockridge said that he stands in the solitude of himself. And that's, um, interesting, that's fascinating to me. <clears throat> and so we have some verses like, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. For this, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. And that is that verse goes on to say that even though he is eternal, and he is so high, so powerful um, yet he dwells with those who are who are humble and contrite and that has significance to us um, he's a big God he's eternal and it means ultimately that we will not be forgotten we will never pass on in the cycle of life and be forgotten we won't be we'll be largely forgotten by other people but we are not forgotten. <clears throat> this morning also we heard from Malachi in the message, and it says there, I am the Lord, I change not. From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. And about the word, 
Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. First Peter. Um, Peter said, The grass withers, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. <clears throat> and so the written word, we heard about the living word. Jesus is the living word. Jesus is called the word of God. And this we have the written word here that we can refer to. And we hear that expression sometimes when we're making an agreement with someone or something. You know, let's get that in writing. We need that in writing. Um, as though it has more significance. <clears throat> and it does for us as people. Um, people are dishonest. People forget. Um, people die. But we have this in writing. And so, therefore, it's good. But God is not like that. And so I think that the written word is not because God is not trustworthy, but it's for our benefit. We need something to refer to. We need to go back to that continuously and see what is there. There's an interesting passage in Luke 4 in verse 17. Um, Jesus was visiting a synagogue there and it says, There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah and when he had opened the book he found the place where it was written and, and it he read that. And so here was the living word reading the written word. Um, that was interesting to me. That Jesus was was reading from the written word there. <clears throat> Matthew 5.18 is the verse that says that, and I had this question when Justin asked me about this as I thought about it. Um, is the written word eternal? Um, will we refer to the written word in heaven? Um, our subject tonight is the written word. We know that the effects of the word are eternal. And the word, the living word, is eternal. But the written word. And I thought about that. And it says in Matthew 5, it's the verse about not one jot or tittle. And it's interesting words there. Um, jot, actually, I think the word for that is iota. And we still use that song today, meaning the, little, the littlest part. And so it, it's not everything will be fulfilled. <clears throat> and also in Luke 22... Verse 37, it says, Jesus was talking and he was reckoned. But I say unto you that this is that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And so 
the things written about Jesus have an end. Um, so I was thinking about that. I'm not sure how that will be, actually. If the written word, will it have a, a purpose in eternity? <clears throat> but we know that the effects are eternal. Um, the consequences, how we view the word, are eternal. And we also know that there is writing in heaven. Um, to him that overcometh, we'll get a white stone with a name written on that stone. The book of life is there. They open the book. There's a record there. Each one will be judged according to what is written therein. And then there's another thing that has interested me over the years. I forgot to write one of my references down, but the Ten Commandments were written, it says, by the finger of God. And to think of God actually writing Ten Commandments. But my understanding is, Hebrews says, that the tablets were part of what was put in the Ark of the Covenant. There was a gold container of manna. There was the rod that budded. And there were the tablets of the covenant. They were in, in the ark of the covenant. But the ark has disappeared. They don't know what happened to it. And they haven't seen it, I think, since the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe. I'm not quite sure about that. And I don't know that I'll ever go to Jerusalem but it would be so interesting if they would find that to see those tablets that God wrote with his finger. But there, then in Revelation 11, verse 19, it says, The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. There it says it is. And I don't know if this is the same one or not. But it has been fascinating to me that possibly it is. They lost the Ark of the Covenant. And John, who was Jewish, you know, they would have loved to have this again. <clears throat> you got to look into heaven. And there's the Ark. Um, so I'm not sure if that's the one or not. But it has writing. It has the, it says, there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And so I think, very possibly, the written word will have a place in heaven. Um, it will be eternal. Every jot and tittle will be taken care of. It will be fulfilled, but it will be there as a record that God is faithful and God is good. Good evening. Welcome each one here. As just mentioned, the topic this evening for me, assigned me, is the effect of the written word on its readers. Uh, just think of the title, the effect it has. God's word will always have an effect on its reader no matter who it is. No matter what we're facing in life, no matter what stage we find ourselves in, whether we're old, whether we're young, 
There'll always be something there for us. I mean, there's some that have been reading the Word, reading the Bible for 70, 80 years, and I'm sure they still find things in there that'll bless them. There's also simple truths in there for the new Christian. And also, another thing I thought of about the effects is the reader. The reader is a big part in how the Word affects them. I'm going to turn to Luke 8 and read the parable of the sower. I thought of that as I was thinking of how the, how the reader has part in that. I'm going to read a few verses from Luke 8. Read 4 through 8 and then 11 through 15 where he explains the parable. And when much people were gathered together, and there came to him out of every city, and were come to him out of every city, he spake by parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell on the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell on a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Another fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Then down in verse 11 through 15 is where he explains this. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word of joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which hath fell among the thorns are they, which when they have heard, go forth, and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring forth, bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they, which in honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. These first three types there, you see that the word didn't do any good to them, even though they heard it, read it, whatever. There was a challenge to me. Or am I... Am I to where I can read the Word and ex- understand it and get a hundredfold out whatever God has for me? I'd look at a few examples in, in the Bible of a few characters and how the Word affected them. Some of these are not actually when they're reading the Word, but are when they heard it. First one is Jeremiah 36, when the king burned the scroll when it was read to him. I'll read a few verses out of Jeremiah 36. You don't have to turn to all these if you don't want. But Jeremiah 36, I'm going to read 21 through 23. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and as he took it out, and he took it out of Elishma, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire in the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. See here, this is one that how we should not act when we hear the word. See the king burn the, burn the scroll. Next one 
is in Acts 6 and 7, when Stephen being stoned. It's another one where the, the people that actually were not actually reading the word themselves, they heard, were hearing Stephen preach, preach the word. Read Acts 7, verse 54. And then 57 and 58. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed on him with their teeth. 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet. His name was Saul. So here, instead of taking to heart what Stephen taught them, was telling them, they went and killed him. Also, I had to think of the Ninevites when Jonah was there teaching them how they did the right thing. They repented and turned their, got their lives right with the Lord. And also, the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8. I'm going to read a few verses there. I think it starts here in 26. Acts 8, verse 26. I'm not going to read this whole thing. It says, was when Philip met him there, read verse 30, and Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the, to heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And then down through there is where Philip read to them and read to him. And it says, there in verse 36, of Ethiopian eunuch must have understood what Philip was telling him. You see there he got baptized then. And that's the last we hear about him, but I'm sure he lived a faithful life. Also, the Philippian jailer, that's in Acts 16. Sixteen, verse thirty through thirty-three. Talk about the flipping jailer and brought them out and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" And they said, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house." And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same night, hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized he and all his straightway. See there. They were teaching him the word, and him and his whole family was saved that night. Now I have a few things here of how the word affects us today as we read it. First one I have is it teaches us the plan of salvation. First, it convicts us of our sin. There's lots of verses in here of in the Bible of how what sin is, and if we read it, we know what it is. If we didn't have the Bible, we wouldn't know. I mean, there's some that there's others around that would teach us if we didn't know, but we can read the Word and He'll show us how to. And it also, it gives us faith to believe that Jesus came and died for us, and also courage to come and ask for forgiveness, knowing that He will forgive us. 
Second one, it gives us power to live above sin and live victorious Christian lives. There's many verses in here of how the power of Christ, many examples of the, in the Word, how He will teach us and show us how to live. And also, it gives us encouragement when times may be tough, no matter what we're facing. There's always encouragement there we can find if we look for it and take the time to read the Scripture. And also, it gives us wisdom, wisdom how to relate to those that around us, things that come up in our lives. We also have church and f- church family and friends to help us with that. There's also there's a lot in the Word about wisdom. It gives us hope, hope of eternal life with Him after our life here, eternal life in heaven, if we're faithful. And the last one I, ha- I have that gives us a burden for the lost around us. We have this hope and we can read the scriptures and it will show us how to live and it should give us a burden for those lost around us so we can show them the hope too and that they can have the hope that we have. As we go from here, let's continue to keep the word of God first in our lives.